Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Sun. In today's episode, scientists are reversing paralysis, delaying aging, and we hear about a new revolutionary HIV treatment that could be a game changer for people living with the virus. But first, it was on this day in 1846 that the word anesthesia was coined by Oliver Wendell Holmes in a letter to William Thomas Green Morton, the surgeon who gave the first public demonstration of the painful effects of Scientists in the United States say they may have found a new breakthrough treatment for reversing paralysis after successfully administering a new injectable therapy in mice. The drug was injected into their spinal cords and the mice were then able to walk again in just four weeks. Over the period of about three to four weeks, uh, we were able to observe that an initially paralyzed mouse as a result of severe uh, spinal cord injury, regained great ability to walk. That's regenerative medicine pioneer Dr. Samuel Strupp from Northwestern University. Spinal cord injury has been a major challenge for science for decades. And the reason is that the central nervous system, which sends messages between your brain and the rest of your body, has very limited capacity to repair after injury. So how did they do it? Well, a concoction of dancing molecules is injected into the tissue around the spinal cord to repair cells. During a spinal cord injury, the axons of neurons are damaged, resulting in loss of feeling or paralysis. This forms a scar that stops axons from regenerating, effectively preventing the body from healing. This new therapy communicates with damaged cells, promoting them to regenerate. At the moment, the only options for patients of spinal cord injury include anti-inflammatory drugs and, of course, physical rehabilitation. However, we have not seen anything in the horizon that covers the broad spectrum of regenerative processes that we have seen in our experiments. To trigger the experiment in mice, an incision was made in the animal's spine to replicate what happens to humans after they suffer a spinal cord injury. The team are hopeful human trials could be approved next year. This therapy is also going to affect other targets that are related to the central nervous system, for example, the brain. You know, so we hope to be able later to use it also for stroke treatments and for neurodegenerative diseases. And we are very excited about this possibility that will make a huge difference to patients. I cannot tell you how excited I am about this work. This is probably the most important paper I have ever written. And it describes a piece of science that was truly unknown. With the world's population estimated to reach 9.8 billion by 2050, scientists are looking at new ways to overcome inevitable food shortages linked to climate change. There's going to be a real need to feed a lot more people. Uh, we, we know we've got already about 800 million people hungry. Come 2050, we're going to have a lot more people. 
Professor Patricia Harvey from the University of Greenwich is the head of the Aquatic Biotechnology and Biology Group at the National Resources Institute. She's pioneering a new approach to consumption, ocean flexitarianism, which advocates eating food from the lower levels of the oceans, such as algae and seaweed. If we keep on looking at land for feeding all those people, we'll run into some real difficulties. If you look at the ocean, about 70% of the Earth is covered with water, and the ocean is about 98% of that. Inevitably, what we're going to be doing is looking at the water to see whether we can get more food from there. We know how to fish. We know how to eat the carnivores, the big fish of the ocean, but we're overfishing. And if we continue to eat at the top levels of the ocean, we will really deprive um, future generations of, of what might be possible in the ocean. Professor Harvey's research is hoping to draw attention to microalgae as a renewable, sustainable and nutritious food source for generations to come. Microalgae are tiny photosynthetic plants that can be found in both fresh and saltwater environments. While some algae can be toxic, there are numerous species that are rich in essential nutrients. Just a tablespoon of spirulina, for example, which is blue-green algae, provides four grams of protein along with a healthy dose of calcium, iron, magnesium and potassium. Algae consume carbon dioxide, like plants. They also use solar energy. We don't have to grow them with high-performance energy systems. Algae convert that carbon dioxide and solar energy into protein, which matches our protein requirements, carotenoids, vitamins, which we need because we can't make them, unsaturated fatty acids, which we desperately need because we can't make them. We need them for our brains. Algae can do all of those. Still to come on the Sunday 7, there's trouble brewing in space and a new species of dinosaurs discovered in England. This week, the US has condemned Russia for conducting what they call a dangerous and irresponsible missile test that it says endangered the crew on the International Space Station. On Monday, Russia fired a projectile into space to destroy one of its old satellites, creating debris that forced the ISS crew to shelter in capsules. A dramatic recording from the International Space Station captured the moment Raja Chari, commander of NASA's Crew 3 mission, was heard going through the evacuation procedures with Mission Control in Houston. SpaceX is on console. If it's under half an hour, we are thinking about coming back on the station. If it's more than half an hour, we are thinking to stay suited and potentially come back home. This is all if Dragon takes a hit. An endurance Houston uh, alteration to that proposal. If, if Dragon takes a hit, we will get you back on station. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said he was outraged and Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby further elaborated their concerns. The most immediate concern is the debris itself, uh, which is now um, f floating out there and could become a hazard, including to the International Space Station. We watch closely um, the kinds of capabilities that uh, Russia seems to want um, uh, to develop. Uh, which could pose a, a threat not just to our national security interests, but the security interests of, of other space-faring nations. Speaking with the BBC, Keir Cowing, a former NASA engineer, laid out just how dangerous this kind of weapons test is. 
You know, if you wanted to test this, you could have picked another satellite somewhere else where the debris was. It's like jumping in front of an ambulance or a school bus. I mean, it's a, pick a pick a worse target, please. And now everybody's got to wonder, well, why did they do that? What is what is the follow up to this? And tonight you've got the astronauts and the cosmonauts sleeping in their escape craft because there is still a threat. That threat is not going away. As a matter of fact, it will get worse over time and it'll affect every nation's spacecraft. So this is a lot of people are really scratching their heads over this one. But there's already too much of this stuff. And here we are, everybody's talking about putting constellations up there of thousands of satellites. And that's an issue in and of itself, except that's somewhat controllable with the traffic, you know, monitoring in, in, in thought and planning. But this is just for, borders on terrorism to a certain extent because you're just wantonly blowing something up with the fragments going wherever they wish and it's a threat that will continue to bother people for years every time you do this it's a decade long risk or longer species of dinosaur with an unusually large nose has been identified by a retired doctor. The bones were uncovered more than 40 years ago on the Isle of Wight, but until recently they've been gathering dust in storage boxes. This is until Dr Jeremy Lockwood decided to go through them. He always believed there had to be more than two types of dinosaur on the island, and it turns out he was right. Here he is speaking with ABC News. I took a a bone, which was a nasal bone, and I thought I'm going to try and reconstruct what the skull of this animal looked like. So I sort of put it into life position, and I thought, goodness me, this has got a bulbous end to the end of its nose. So it became obvious that this was something completely different. It took Dr Lockwood two years to sift through all the bones, but the new species has now been confirmed by experts. It's being called Brystonia simomsi, after the village of Brystone where the bones were first found. The latter part of the name is in honour of Keith Simmons, an amateur collector who was involved in finding and excavating the specimen. He first discovered the bones in 1978, and now the new species has been confirmed, he's delighted. Uh, some of history books, really, and uh, yeah, it's very good. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the Thames River is once again brimming with life, and a revolutionary new treatment for HIV is coming to the UK, right after this. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. Sixty years after it was declared biologically dead, life in the River Thames is back and better than ever. And it even has some new residents. The river was so polluted in the 1950s that scientists believed that the water body could not sustain any life form. However, since those dark days of pollution, the river has bounced back miraculously. The Zoological Society of London published a report last week that said the river is now a rich and varied home for wildlife. During a health check, experts found sharks, eels, seals and seahorses in the water. We've gone from the river being devoid of life and water so so dead that nothing could live into it to a healthy, thriving river where we've got over 115 species of fish living in it, 92 birds, you know, an abundance of marine mammals and seals, sharks even, and of course the very cute seahorses that live in the outer estuary. That was Alison Bebney, the Wetland Ecosystem Recovery Lead. 
Water quality in the Thames has improved in recent years thanks to improved sewage treatment works that have reduced harmful pollutants entering the water. This has allowed three types of endangered native sharks, 115 types of fish and 92 bird species to once again call the river home. What we were really encouraged to see is that we've really seen some really big improvements in water quality. Another thing we're really pleased to see about, of course, is the wildlife. We've now got 115 species. There are none in 1957, or maybe the lonely eel, but 92 bird species. We've got mammals that are increasing, sharks that are present, you know, interesting species such as seahorses. And all of that gives us a really encouraging picture that this is a, a thriving ecosystem that supports a lot of wildlife. This is great progress from the 1957 study, but today's researchers are concerned that all this progress could be lost to rising temperatures and climate change. Fish and other species depend on water temperature to trigger really important things like spawning or growth. And so if you change water temperature, they get the triggers wrong, so they start spawning at the wrong time of year. This changes the life cycle of wildlife, triggering a domino effect on the whole food chain. London's famously murky river is actually England's second longest and its passage through the city and out to the coast means its health is vital for the UK's climate aims. So here in the Tidal Thames we're fortunate we have a, a transition from the freshwater environment through central London brackage out to an important coastal marine habitat. And as part of that you get a range of different habitats in them. In the outer terrestries we find a rich diversity of salt marsh, seagrass, mud flats, all incredible habitats. And they're all habitats that we consider as blue carbon habitats. They store and process carbon and lock it away, thereby giving us a solution helping mitigate climate change. It's really important that we recognise these important habitats and it's really important that we protect them as well. What we're actively trying to do at ZSL is to restore, repair and make these habitats more resilient. It's a great opportunity for South East and the Tidal Thames to champion these habitats because this will be the future of the Thames. Scientists in Beijing may be one step closer to living longer and reversing ageing. A group of scientists at the Chinese Academy of Sciences say they've developed new gene therapy which can reverse some of the effects of ageing in mice and extend their lifespans, findings which may one day contribute to similar treatment for humans. The method, detailed in a paper released earlier this year, involved screening around 10,000 genes in search of particularly strong drivers of cellular ageing. They identified 100 genes in that pool, but the one that really stood out was called CAT7. They then inactivated that gene in the livers of mice. The specific therapy they used and the results were a world first, said co-supervisor of the project, Professor Ku Jing, and she explained some of the findings to Reuters. These mice show after six to eight months, they show overall improved appearance and uh, great strength, and most importantly, they have extended lifespan for about 25%. The scientists also tested the function of that special gene in human stem cells, liver cells and more with positive results. Still, this therapy has a long way I to go we, before human we have, we, we don't understand the nature of aging yet. So we cannot say we disobey that. We firstly need to understand what aging is and like how long we, we eventually can get to live. Right? And then maybe it's not the truth that we disobey nature. We just find the, uh, the reason, the, the secrets to make our, ourselves live longer. And in the end, we, we do hope we can find a way to delay aging, even 
by very minor percentage, we want to delay the human aging in the future. On Thursday, Vive Healthcare, the global specialist HIV company, announced that people living with the virus in England and Wales will soon have routine access to the first long-acting, injectable treatment for HIV. Around 13,000 adults living with HIV in England will be eligible for the injection via the NHS, which has been hailed as a breakthrough for treatment. Many people living with HIV can keep the virus at low levels by taking daily antiretroviral tablets. These drugs keep the number of virus particles in the blood so low that it can't be detected or transmitted between people. But this newly approved injection means that many people living with HIV will soon have the option of having two injections every two months instead, reducing the days they receive treatment from 365 to just six per year. Gary from London lives with HIV and he thinks this new treatment will be freeing for many. Um, I think the, the potential of being able to move towards this new, longer-acting treatment uh, allows people to have a greater degree of freedom and a, a, a greater degree of, of freedom from their own anxieties on a day-to-day -day basis. For, for many people, the challenge of that daily reminder of taking HIV treatment is a, is a big one. You know, the, the fact that each day they look at those pills and think about what they may have lost as a result of their HIV status, what they may not get as a result of that. The, the anxiety about relationships and finding love is something that we all share, but it might be that bit more challenging for somebody living with HIV to think about and worry if, if that's ever going to happen for them. Uh, but also, the fact that for people with complex lives, whether that's related to their social life, whether it was, I mentioned students before, people, younger people doing lots of different things, out and about all the time, not wanting to carry medication with them. I think the potential for this to change those perceptions of, of, of life with HIV, to take away those daily reminders, and to educate the public in a, in a way, to, for, to people to think that this is so easily managed now that an injection every two months keeps it fully under control. I think that's a really strong message for the public as much as anything else. I'm really heartened by the degree of interest that I've seen in the UK around the, the release and the approval of this new drug because it means that there, there's going to be a level of awareness on the manageability of HIV that there previously wasn't. Looking at what this means for the perception and treatment of the virus going forward, Gary's hopeful that the future's bright. You know, I, I hope we'll see more people who live with HIV be open about it. I hope we'll see more awareness and I hope we'll see more medical progress that gets us to that point where maybe we have a vaccine, maybe even a cure. Uh, but until then, I think these technological advances of, of, of long-acting um, antiretroviral medication are a great step in that direction. This has been The Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris.